Well, it is a joy for me and my wife to be here with you this morning. Greetings on behalf of the elders at Grace Community Church, where we'd normally be on a Sunday morning, but we have an opportunity to be here. And when Tom invited me to come, uh, however many months ago, uh, actually, when I looked at the calendar, I realized it was going to be on a, a birthday weekend, uh, and it, it, it's my wife's birthday today. So, uh, but but the benefit of coming. <laughs> By the way, Tom's right. You don't mention the numbers that go with those kinds of, uh, with our wives. So we will, I won't say how, how many years. But uh, it was a, a joy for us to take up the opportunity because it allows us to get a, away from the busy schedule back there in California. Everything is always busy over there and to enjoy some time here on the weekend to uh, be with each other and then uh, to be with you uh, this morning and spend some time with uh, Pastor Tom and his, his wife. But I do thank you, Tom, for the opportunity to open God's Word this morning. As you mentioned, our time does go back a couple of decades. We really got to know each other uh, actually on the other side of the world when we were serving in, in uh, Russia. We invited Tom to come a couple of times and he would stay in our home and we'd have some precious fellowship together there. And, and uh, the Russian pastors who were being trained at, the, at, at that time we're always so very, very grateful for Tom, his clarity, his passion, his uh, commitment to the church, and his commitment to Jesus Christ. So uh, for me to uh, take up his invitation to come back is certainly a, a joy in light of all that he has done and the impact that he has had on, on my life as well. I'm so very thankful to the Lord for him, as I'm sure you are as well. Well, when I thought of what to exposit this morning I wanted to connect it with what we'll look at also this evening, and the idea that, that I came as I prayed through this and reflected on the scriptures was the concept of, of uh, intercession. Often when we think of the Christian life, we look at it in terms of what God has done through Christ on our behalf in history, looking particularly at that moment some 2,000 years ago when God, on our behalf, sacrificed His Son so that we might come to be righteous, to have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And so when we think of redemption, we think of what God has done, or we think of redemption, on the other hand, of what God will do in the future, and we look forward to that time when we will see our Lord face to face, and we yearn and long for that glory that will come when all of the groaning of this life will be done away with and we will finally be like Him as the Apostle John tells us in, in 1 John 3. We often look at the Christian life in, in those two senses, either what God has done or what He will do, and the time in between is, is often a little bit nebulous and we can think that so much is dependent upon us, that the gift of salvation has been given to us and so it's our job now to preserve it in some form or some way from what we receive to what He will then do with it ultimately, perfectly at that final moment. And we can, if we are truthful, become quite discouraged by how poorly we do that. And it is the doctrine of the intercession of Christ and the intercession of the Holy Spirit which takes place even now, which is so very vital to us, and yet a doctrine that is so often neglected in our lives, one that is intended 
to give us great comfort and hope as we are on this path to the celestial city, as we encounter many dangers, toils, and snares, that ultimately our salvation is not contingent upon how we handle things, but is contingent upon the very perfect intercessory ministries of Jesus and the Spirit. This evening we're going to look at the intercession of the Holy Spirit from Romans chapter 8, but this morning what I want to do is dig into a text which is so very encouraging to us as it relates to the intercession of the Lord Jesus. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 7, and we will look at verses 23 to 25 in particular, but to set the context, I want to read from verse 11 writer of Hebrews, under the superintendence of the Holy Spirit, writes as follows. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests." And this is clearer still, if another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and usefulness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath Through the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever, so much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. And now verses 23 to 25, the former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. As the name of this letter indicates, Hebrews was written to a Jewish audience and a mixed Jewish audience at that. On the one hand, the writer of Hebrews is having to confront those who are mingling with the church 
Those who were not genuinely saved. Those who had all the trappings of the old religion and in many ways looked very similar to those who are in Christ, but they are those of whom this writer describes in Hebrews 13, who had an evil, unbelieving heart. They were called the brethren, not in a spiritual sense, but in Hebrews 13, the writer calls them brethren because of their shared ethnicity. They were descendants of Jacob. They were the ones who received the promises of the Old Testament, the covenants, the prophets. They were the ones who even knew Psalm 110 and the, the promise that is made here to this Messiah who would receive a priesthood from Yahweh himself. They were familiar with those things and yet they refused to put their faith in this one. That was part of the audience that the writer addresses, but he addresses others as those who are the beloved, those of whom he writes in Hebrews 6 verses 9 and 10 when he says, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. He goes on to say, for God is not unjust as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name. They were those who were called the beloved. They had received the believing heart. And because of their faith in Jesus as the Messiah, because they were those who believed he was the promised one, they were experiencing the ostracism and the hostility from their own people. To be a Jewish believer in those days, as very much it is today, was a very, very difficult thing. And so the writer of Hebrews addresses them also in this letter to bring them great comfort and to address both groups. What both audiences needed was a message on the superiority of Jesus Christ. If we would sum up this letter, it would be that idea, superiority, namely the superiority of Jesus and as the writer writes, beginning in the very first words of this letter, all the way through the end, we see that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than the prophet Moses. Jesus is better than the Levitical priests. Jesus is better than the high priest. Jesus is better than the sacrificial system prescribed in the Old Testament. In Jesus, we find the ultimate revelation of God. In Jesus, we find the ultimate sacrifice for sins. In Jesus, we find the ultimate source of grace and mercy. In Jesus, we find the ultimate rest for our souls. So much of this letter, therefore, is based on this idea of contrast. Contrasting the old way, the old traditions with what Jesus is and what he has done and what he does. And to communicate this superiority of Jesus, the writer goes back into the Old Testament. Even though Jesus is the superior revelation of God that does not nullify what has been spoken prophetically of him in the Old Testament. And so the writer in this letter goes back to various Old Testament texts and throughout this letter he brings out 
exposition and illustrations of how these Old Testament promises show that Jesus is indeed better. That was the message all along from the very beginning, the coming Messiah who would outdo everything. And in the heart of this letter, beginning in chapter 4, verse 14, all the way to the end of chapter 7, the writer of Hebrews focuses on Psalm 110. And throughout this section, unfold Psalm 110 verse 4 in particular, showing how that verse applies to the person of Jesus. Back there in Psalm 110, in that great messianic psalm, where Yahweh speaks to David's Adonai, Yahweh says this, verse 4, David records, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You, speaking to David's Adonai, are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In chapter 4, verse 14, then of Hebrews all the way to the end of chapter 7, that's the focus, the priesthood of Jesus. And that was very, very important for these audiences to hear as it is for us to hear today as well because as much as we we, we are revolted by the idea of human priests that we see in the various religions of the world today. The reality of it is we still need a priest. We still need a priesthood. Our salvation is still contingent upon a priesthood, but it is a very unique kind of priesthood, and that is what the writer wants us to see here to extol the superiority of Jesus, the writer directs our attention to Jesus' unique priesthood and to the unique priestly ministry that flows out of all that Jesus is, all that he has done historically, how it flows out to impact our lives even today. And to make that point, the writer forces us to look at the difference between the old priesthood of Israel and this priesthood of Jesus. And as we make that comparison, the writer helps us see the, the, the comforting conclusion that comes from that comparison. Our focus this morning is going to follow that line, that logic of comparison. And we're going to see in verses 23 to 24 of chapter 7 of Hebrews the crucial comparison the crucial comparison, verses 23 and 24, and then in verse 25, the comforting conclusion. Let's look at the first element here, the crucial comparison. And we begin with the first object that is compared, the old priesthood, in verse 23. The writer says this, the former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. Now, the language in the original here is a little difficult, and so the NASB renders it in a, in a smoother way, but if we were to translate it literally from the original, it would read this way. On the one hand, the many who have become priests, because of death, are prevented from continuing. 
To introduce his logic, we, we see him say, on the one hand, so we see that there are two things to be compared here, and the first item is the Old Testament priesthood. Now, for For Israel in those days, next to the temple itself, there was nothing more glorious than the priesthood. The priesthood was was that important element that defined the entire nation. In fact, you can see it even in other religions around the world today. There is great pride that is taken in their priesthoods. That's their cherished treasure. The priesthood, and that certainly was the case for the Jews of that day. They cherished the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood that they had, as they believed that was their intercession, that was their way to God through those priests. And so long as those priests did their thing, everything would be okay. You can understand why then in in, in ancient Israel and in other religions today, why this human priesthood is so important. It's the pathway. It's the entry. It's what, what brings you into the presence of God. Now, in making this comparison, notice one of the crucial elements that he draws out. He, he first points to the sheer quantity of this old priesthood. He says, the many who have become priests. Now the issue here is, what kind of quantity is he referring to? Now it may be easy to think that he's referring simply to the Levitical priesthood as a whole. If you were a male in the descendant of, and a descendant of Levi, and you had the right personal qualifications, you would qualify to be one of the Levitical priests. And at any given time, in any generation, there were thousands of them capable of serving in the, the temple area at any given time, thousands of them. But, but the writer here isn't focused on the Levitical priests per se. He's instead focused on a certain kind of priest within that system. Notice in the context In verse 26, just after our verses here, the writer indicates what priesthood specifically he is referring to here. Notice verse 26, for it is fitting for us to have such a high priest. The kind of quantity that the writer has in mind here back in verse 23 is not this contemporaneous quantity, the the thousands of Levitical priests that could serve at any given time. Instead, the idea here is a successive quantity, a, a, a sequential quantity. He's referring here to the quantity, the sheer number of the high priests who had served in the history of Israel, there were many, dozens. The high priests were at the, the top of the hierarchy for the people. In fact, they were, the, in many ways, served as a surrogate king. By the time the, that Israel is back in the land, after the exile, there's no longer any monarchy. In many ways, the high priests For the people of Israel served as the head, not just in religious and social life, but also in politics. They were the top. And again, the people 
relished. They, they, they loved their priesthood. But as, as our writer states, he wants us first to focus on the many. And then he gets to the second crucial element of this comparison. He focuses on the many because of their limited duration. Look back at verse 23. The many, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. The logic of comparison here isn't strength in numbers. Instead, the logic of the comparison here that the writer is making is that there is weakness in numbers. There is weakness in this reality of one after another after another. Everyone being replaced by the next, having limited duration, limited efficacy, And the writer points to the fact that the very mortality of these priests showed their impotence. They were never able to bring their work to conclusion. That is why they needed so many. The high priest would die, and then there'd be another one. There's never any finality. Their works never achieved any sense of perfection. One would serve, never finish, he would die, the next one would take his place, on and on and on it went. And the work of the high priest in particular was, was, was vividly displayed on the Day of Atonement, right around this time of the year. The Day of Atonement, the high priest would take the blood of the sacrifice and first he, he would make a sacrifice for his own sin and then a sacrifice for the sin of the people, and then he would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it on the ark. And then he would hightail it out of the Holy of Holies. He could never remain. In fact, what they would do would would be to tie a rope around their ankles so that if they went into that special room only once a year, that if they had somehow blasphemed the Lord in their lives and and had, had an in, and disqualified themselves that if they would be struck down by the glory of God in that holy of holies, their bodies could be pulled out so that no one else had to ever enter that room. That was the work of the, the high priest. Each one ascended, each one died, on and on, generation after generation. The Jewish historian Josephus states that from the time of Aaron until the destruction of the temple in AD 70, there had been 83 high priests, one after the other. This is the first side of the comparison. The writer wants us to understand, again, that there is not strength in numbers but weakness. Verse 23. Then he gets now to the second side of the comparison. Verse 24, notice what he says about the other item here to be compared. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Again, the grammar here in the original is is a little rough, but if we would translate it literally, it would read this way. But the one, because he remains forever, holds his priesthood permanently. 
Notice the vivid contrast here. In comparison to the many, the writer just states the one. The name Jesus doesn't even appear in the original. Now, there's no debate. We know the writer of Hebrews is talking about Jesus. There's no question there. But his intent here is not for us to focus so much on the name as to focus on the singularity. In contrast to the many, there is the one. Jesus shares his priesthood with no one else. There is no one else in his line. He is in a class all by himself. There is no predecessor. There is no successor. He is the only one. The one. And as we look at this comparison, not only do we see it in terms of number, but we see it also in terms of duration. Notice the writer says this, because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. In contrast to the limited nature, the limited efficacy of those Old Testament high priests, Jesus holds his priesthood permanently. It never is taken from his hands. It never passes to another. It is never transferred. There's never a time when his priesthood falters. Why? Because he does his ministry forever. So long as there is the need of his people, he is the one and the only to perform this ultimate intercession. And when we look at the letter to the Hebrews in general, we see why he is the one to do this. Throughout the book, we see it emphasized that that he does not offer the blood of an animal sacrifice. Instead, he has offered the blood of his own body. Moreover, he does not offer a sacrifice first for his own sins, as the high priest would, and, and then for the sins of the people. No, he offers a sacrifice for exclusively the sins of his own people. He does not perform the duties then in the, in the holy of holies and then quickly exit. Instead, he remains there. He has no rope tied around his ankle in order to pull him out should he be disqualified from the Father's presence. And he does not exit that holy of holies only to repeat that same sacrifice year after year after year. No, he did it once and for all and therefore never has to leave that spiritual holy of holies. This is the second side of the comparison. He is the one, and what he does is permanent. Now, from that crucial comparison in verses 23 and 24, we now come to the comforting conclusion. Verse 25, therefore, follow his logic here. He says, therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him because he always lives to make intercession for them. He is able to save forever. Literally, it reads, to save unto the uttermost, he is able. 
The emphasis is placed at the end of the sentence and the emphasis falls on those words, he is able. His ability is what arises to the, to the surface as we compare these two kinds of priesthood. There is the ability of Jesus that has no equal in the priesthood of the old covenant. He is able to save, the idea of saving here is not just in the initial sense. What is in view here is that final salvation where redemption is brought to its designed end. He is able not just to initiate, but because of his priesthood, he is able to bring it all the way to the very end where the period is placed on God's redemptive plan. He is able to do this, moreover, to the utmost, forever. It's difficult to translate that idea, but it has the idea of perfection. He is able to bring it to the very complete, perfect end. Now, who are the objects of this priestly ministry? We see it also defined for us in verse 25. Able is he to save those who... Draw near to God through him. This is important. It was, it was important for these audiences to hear. It's important for us to hear too. This is not a universal priesthood. This is not a priesthood that is done universally for all men. It's select. And it's, it is qualified by this phrase, those who draw near to God through this very priest. And that concept was very much a repeated concept in Hebrews. If, if you've read Hebrews before, you know you come across it numerous times throughout this letter. It, it, it arises, for example, in chapter 4, verse 16, where the writer writes, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We saw it even in our own reading this morning from chapter 7 in verses 18 and 19 where we read this, for on the one hand there is a setting aside of the former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness and on the other hand there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. We see it also in chapter 10, verses 19 to 22, where again, it is said that since we have this great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Now, when we read of that, of drawing near, sometimes the idea can be we, we, we draw near because of some inherent worthiness, but that's not the case here. We draw near not because we are worthy of it. We draw near not because we, we have the, the right in ourselves to enter that throne room of, of God. No, the idea here uh, of drawing near is it, it arises out of our great and desperate need. We have no other choice. We have no other solution. There's no other option. We are in need. And this need to, to draw near is not to some building, it's not to some altar, but it's a movement in a spiritual sense drawing near to God. And this drawing near to God can only be done 
in this salvific sense, if there is to be this perfected salvation, it can only be done through Jesus, through this very high priest. It's like what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, when he said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or we remember that account in the the upper room as Jesus gives his farewell address to his disciples and, and tells them he's going to be with the Father. And you have Thomas ask this question, well, well, how can we get there? And Jesus says to Thomas, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This was something the old priesthood could never do. This was something that made the old priesthood imperfect. It made it weak. It made it useless. As the writer says back in verse 18. No, this priesthood is effectual. And all those who acknowledge their desperation, who know they have no inherent right to enter that throne room, yet he is there bidding them come. It is for those who know that and understand that. And when they come, that priesthood intercedes and brings them near to their very source of everything the soul desires. As S. Lewis Johnson said, the Christian life is a life that is lived in a realization of our inability and the Lord Jesus Christ's ability. But how? How does he do this? How can he accept us and be that great intercessor for us? That is found at the end of the verse. Look at this clause at the end of verse 25. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. What a beautiful phrase. In fact, in many ways, if you would read this letter to the Hebrews and look for the most profound, most soul-drawing phrase that elevates the compassion of Jesus Christ and his love for his people, it's right here. Because he always lives to make intercession for them. To intercede means to stand between the needy one and the one who has the supply. To intercede means to stand between the guilty one and the the judge. To intercede means to stand between those who recognize that nothing in their hands they bring, and on the other hand, there's the one who in his hands contains everything. The, intercede, the, the one who intercedes here is the one who stands between. And as the writer of Hebrews so beautifully paints, he is the one who partakes both of the divine nature and of the human nature and is able to find the way of perfect salvation. This verb for intercession, to intercede, is also found In Romans 8, verse 34, it's not a very frequent term, but we find it there in Romans 8, 34, where the Apostle Paul writes it this way. He says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? 
God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who then condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, who rather was raised, and who is at the right hand of God and also intercedes for us. In fact, we have that phrase that comes right at the end, both there in Romans 8.34, for us, and here also in our text in Hebrews 7 verse 25, he ever, he ever lives to make intercession for them, for them. Calvin puts it this way as he reflected on this amazing compassion and care that is Implicit in these words, Calvin states, what sort of pledge and how great is this love towards us. Christ lives for us. He lives for us. That he lives to meet our needs. That that he lives to always bring us into peace and harmony with the Father. And Jesus does this unlike any other. In, in one majestic ministry, he fulfills the interests of both God and the interests and needs of man. And he does this beautifully, he does this perfectly. And this is why the writer says to the audiences that he addresses, you need a priest. You need this priestly ministry. But you need the right kind of priest Not the old ones, they were many, you need the one. Not the old ones, they were unable, you need the one who's able. Not the old ones who could not save themselves, let alone others, you need the one who's able to save to the uttermost. You need the one who didn't die, but the one who ever lives. That's who you need. And Jesus is that superior priest. In the third stanza of Charles Wesley's hymn, Arise, My Soul, Arise, he captures this idea well when he writes, five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry, nor let that ransomed sinner die. And of course we know that the Father loves the prayers of his Son. And there's never a prayer that the Son makes on behalf of those who come through him. There's never a prayer that he makes, never a request that the Father does not love to hear and that the Father does not fail to answer. And this is what the the unbelieving in that community needed to hear. The inability of that old priesthood. Those men could never do this. They needed to realize that there was only one who could and place all of their faith in that one, in that Jesus And so as we come to the conclusion here, as we reflect upon this great contrast, perhaps you're one in that audience, and maybe your trust has been in human institutions, human abilities. You're like those of the old covenant. You you like the trappings. You like all the traditions. 
and you've placed your trust in those things. But the writer of Hebrews comes to you and says that is ineffective. And it will never bring you to this final salvation ever. You need this great high priest. This one who has made a sacrifice and has entered the Holy of Holies to make intercession and to bring to completion the salvation of anyone who would recognize their weariness, their heavy ladenness, and would come to Christ and say, I need help. And perhaps if you're in that audience, you would say, well, I can can never enter that throne room to get the grace I need. My heart is evil, but it's Jesus who bids you come. And he is the one as that great intercessor who says, I will pray for you. And my father hears. But these words are also encouraging for the second audience, those who have come to Christ, who have already had that righteousness imputed to them, and yet they live their lives either in fear or in discouragement, fear perhaps from the ostracism and hostilities or perhaps discouragement from the remaining flesh that's there as they still see the remnants of sin in their lives and and they wonder, will I make it through to the end? Will I actually see Jesus the moment I die? And these words are of such encouragement. They're worth such encouragement because they remind us that our final salvation is not contingent upon us. We could never keep our hold. But that's okay. Because he keeps his. We're like Robert Murray McShane expressed when he said this. He said, oh, but if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. And yet we don't hear him praying these prayers and so we fear. Yet Robert Murray McShane goes on to say this based on such a precious truth as this one here in Hebrews. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me and I take that by faith and that gives me all the assurance that I need. It's these kinds of words that also elicit some of our great hymns. There's one that is so very dear, written by Charity Lee's Bancroft in 1860, 1863. It was called originally Advocate, but is now known as Before the Throne of God Above. And the stanzas read as follows. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, my perfect spotless righteousness. 
the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ, my Savior and my God. Let's pray. Father, indeed, we, we are brought to this point of adoration when we consider the, the profound truth of these verses in Hebrews. Such encouragement, such a, a sweetness to our souls, such a reassurance and a promise that our salvation is contingent upon just one And that one is perfect. And not only has he provided the perfect once-for-all sacrifice, but he ever lives to make intercession for us, even taking this prayer and making it perfect to your ears. We thank you for him. And we love him. And long for the time to see him face to face. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.